All right, everybody. Glad to see you tonight. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 22. We have two chapters left in this section. We have two weeks left in this class before we have our summer break. So, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish right on schedule. Isaiah chapter 22. We have two more burdens uh, to give. This one in chapter 22 is going to be focused entirely around Jerusalem, which is kind of um, uh, at the heart of all of Isaiah's uh, message anyway. It's the whole book started with Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem and the wider part of that Judah in general. But... For the past several chapters, we've, we've kind of gone all the way around, looked at a bunch of different other kingdoms and places and peoples. And now, as we near the end of this section, we zero it in on uh, God's people in the capital of that city, which is or the capital city of that land, which is Jerusalem, which is called here in my Bible, the Valley of Vision. But yours might say the Valley of Zion. Verse one says the burden of the Valley of Vision. What ails thee now? That you are wholly gone up to the housetops. So, anybody have Valley of Vision? Am I the only one? You have, anybody have Valley of Zion? You do? Someone back there says yes? Alright, well, it, is, it could be either one. It depends on your translation. Uh, I can tell you the, um, the uh, official old Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translated Valley of Zion. But Valley of Vision works in kind of a poetic way. This is the epicenter of when God would send his prophets. They would come from... This, this place, not necessarily from Jerusalem, but they would come from God's land to go out to the various parts of the world to do their preaching and teaching. So the Valley of Vision is the Valley of God's communication with man, the Valley of God's relationship with man, the Valley of God knowing what God expects of them uh, from God to man. All that is the subject of this vision in chapter 22. And it begins really with a question. What ails you now, God asked them, that you are wholly gone up to the housetops? What's going on that has brought you up to your roof. And you got to understand the point there. Our roofs on our houses, you know, they're slanted. No one gets up there unless you're messing around with an antenna. But back in the day, old old houses were flat roof. And we have, you know, a porch where you could congregate, you could barbecue and stuff like that. Well, they got up on their house. And that's, you know, that's a person uh, barbecuing. Um, they wouldn't barbecue their juice. But uh, they'd get up and they would have it was a flat place so basically their porch was on their roof they would get up there and they would you know mellow out relax in the cool nights or they would you know have uh company over and stuff because they have no air conditioning in there unlike in here where it's seven degrees they had no air conditioning so they would go out there and they would relax and enjoy uh, one of those company up there so that was like their porch was up there so isaiah depicts them as going up under their roofs and looking around and so he says what's going on well god knows exactly what's going on this is one of those setup kind of statements there's two things going to happen in this chapter. The first half of it is about Jerusalem in general. And then for the second half, we're going to zoom in on two people that kind of symbolize the problem. So let's look at the big picture of it first, where God says, what's going on? Verse 2. You are full of stirs, uh, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. There's a lot of translation variation in this verse in particular. So I want to ask if I can get uh, some different versions. Mine says, you're full of stirs. What does your Bible say? Full of shouting. Noise. Full of shouting. All right. Yeah. Noise. Yep. Uh, tumultuous. That's the sound of this, this, this uh, perpetual activity, a hustle and bustle sound. It's not necessarily the sound of panic. It's not necessarily the sound of partying. It's just the sound of activity, tumultuous sound. 
But then you get the specific in the next phrase. Mine says, a joyous city. Is that what yours says? Something like that? Hmm? Tumultuous. Tumultuous. Well, what's the next phrase after tumultuous? And joyous too? Okay. So that's the idea. So we're looking at a city that, as we've been talking about all of these other burdens and all the history that's going on, what we're building up to is Assyria's invasion into Judah. That's what we're building to in this half of Isaiah. Assyria has, is taking or has taken the north, and now they're coming into the south, which is where Judah is, and little by little they're taking it. So you would expect uh, a, a vibe of panic. Instead, Isaiah says, it's like a party up in here. What's going on? There's joy. And the reason is because the people's attitude is, well, we're not dead yet. We're not dead. So we have every reason to celebrate. All these other people, our neighbors to the north and the east and so forth, they're all dead, but we're not dead, so... Everything seems great. And it's that kind of arrogant ignorance that God's going to condemn in the first half of this chapter. This idea of, well, we haven't been killed yet, so I assume I'll never be killed. That kind of ignorance uh, that breeds kind of stupid arrogance is what we're going to get to. So you have all this commotion going on, all this riot, uh, joy, jubilant kind of happening, and their attitude is, well, nobody's dead. And Isaiah says, nobody's dead yet with the sword. But your people are going to die. You're going to be uh, surrounded and trapped and locked into your city. And then you're going to be under siege and you're going to starve to death. It's going to be a different kind of death. It's not going to be a typical go to battle and blood stain, people dying all over the field with, you know, sword wounds over the body. No, it's going to be people inside the, the walls of Jerusalem with an army camped outside, not letting anyone go in or out. And you're running out of food, and mothers are eating their babies, and people are eating their shoes, and that kind of terrible condition is what Jerusalem is going to wait, uh, going to encounter. And right now they're thinking, well, none of our soldiers are dead, so you know, glass half full and all. That's not what's going on here. Verse three: How bad are things going to get? Your rulers are fled together, and they're bound by the archers, and all that are found in thee are bound together which have fled from far. You have to remember what Isaiah does, what most of God's prophets do when they prophesy, is they write the future event in a past or a, a present or a past tense. So rarely do you get a prophecy that's a you will or you shall or they will. It's usually you are or you have been. Because when God thinks about things from a prophetic standpoint, he does so from the attitude of, I've already seen it, it's already going to happen it's so certainly in my mind that it might as well have already happened and so he inspires his prophets to write about it in a past tense form or in a past perfect tense or something like that where they would say you know i see your city is burned but it hasn't burned yet but that's the vision of it so isaiah is saying i'm looking and i'm seeing a people whose leaders are fleeing and whose archers are or who archers are attacking so it hasn't happened yet but that's the perspective he's seeing verse four Therefore I, Isaiah says, I said, look away from me, I will weep bitterly. Labor not to comfort me because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people. I see what's going to come to Jerusalem and to Judah in general. I see God's people, my people, are going to be slaughtered. They're going to be uh, brutalized. They're going to be uh, you know, uh, pulverized in a metaphorical sense or if they get out of the city in a literal sense. They're going to be completely annihilated, and it brings him to grief. We've already gone over this in the past few weeks, whenever he talks about Babylon going down or other kingdoms and nations going down. He writes about it 
with this attitude of it's a terrible thing. Even though these are wicked, evil pagans, when they die, it should be addition by subtraction. But it's not. The attitude is it's a terrible thing. These lost people are dead. And now that same attitude, if he's going to feel like that about Babylon, how do you think he's going to feel when it's his own neighbors, his own fellow countrymen? Jerusalem is going to die. And he says, I am going to weep and I don't want you to comfort me. I don't want you to pat me on the back and tell me it's going to be okay. Because for all those dead people, it's not going to be okay. Because my people, the King James says, are going to be spoiled. They're going to be stripped bare. They're going to lose everything. Verse 5. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and the crying to the mountains. This is the summary of the fall of Jerusalem. He's not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of it. He's, he doesn't need to. Uh, I, you can read like um, uh, critics of the Bible, critics of Isaiah who are looking to poke holes in it and will say, well, he's not very specific. He's very, very vague, so it's not really a prophecy. It could be like it could be referring to anything. But Isaiah, first of all, Isaiah doesn't owe anybody a defense of his writing or his writing style. His words will stand up to scrutiny to the test of time much more than these critics' words ever will. But he also, just to get into the text, doesn't have to give you a detailed, nitty-gritty, point-by-point, blow-by-blow account of what's going to happen. That's He's, he's not a historian. He's a prophet. He's not looking into the past. He's looking to the future. He may be writing in the past tense, but that's just style. He's looking to what's coming. And so he writes in broad strokes, as all the prophets do. And every one of them has proven themselves inspired. So why Isaiah gets picked on, I said this in week one of this class, Isaiah is the most attacked book other than Genesis in the whole Old Testament. It's because there's so much that proves the inspiration of the Bible. All the things that he prophesies about Assyria and about Babylon and about Cyrus to come, if those are all true, then everything he says about the Messiah to come must be true. And people don't want to accept that, so they try to tear down everything else. Well, sorry, it is what it is, and it is true. He says six things about the destruction of Jerusalem in this verse. He says, first, it is a day of trouble, uh, is a day of destruction, of panic in the streets, which right now, they're on their roofs, they're having parties. Everything's fine, but the day's coming when it'll be trouble. Second, he says it's a day of treading down in the King James, a day of being trampled, mud under horses' hooves and soldiers' boots. It is three, a day of perplexity, a day of great confusion. You've heard of perhaps the fog of war, where it's just, you're not quite sure where exactly is the enemy? How big is the enemy? Where is the enemy going? How many forces do we have? And where are they? That, that kind of state of confusion that makes it very hard to plan and strategize well imagine just being in the thick of a city that's under siege and you don't know are we fighting back are we hunkering down what's going on where do we what are we doing where where what confusion fourth it's a day of the breaking down of walls or fortified places safe havens shelters i'm going to be safe because i'll be here nope that's going to be destroyed well i can have my backup place i can go here nope that's going to be destroyed too the only true permanent shelter that these people have is the hand of God. And they have long since smacked that away. So every other place they might go for shelter is going to be torn down by God himself. Fifth, it's a day of crying to the mountains. Jerusalem is a city of, of mountains. It's, there's hills all over the place, two huge ones in particular. Um, and 
the idea of crying to the mountains is a very beautiful, poetic, sad, poetic way of saying crying up into the sky. Because as they, as they look up, they just, they're surrounded by elevated terrain. They're just crying up to the mountains around them. You can run to the hills, but you're going to get caught. And when you're caught, all you can do is cry to them. In verse 6, it is a day by the Lord God of hosts. When this terrible day comes, when Jerusalem finally does fall, the credit will go not to Babylon. The credit will not go to Nebuchadnezzar. The credit will not go in a negative way to their stupid leaders. The credit will go to God. As weird as that may sound, because this is his city and his people, and they're all going to be dying, and yet God says, I did that. I caused that. I could have stopped that. And instead, as we're going to get to in a second, God's going to open the door and let them in because this is his punishment. This is the day of God being done here. So who's doing all this punishing? Who's doing all this hard stuff? Verse 6. And Elam bare the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen. And Kir, K-I-R, uncovered the shield. Elam and Kir are cities mostly commonly associated with the Medes and the Persians. But they are originally going to be um, under the auspices of Babylon. And the context here is of Babylon. It's ironic that these cities that are associated with, you know, like if here's Babylon, and here's Babylon itself, and the early expansion of the city, which is going to completely expand this way. But if they're over here right now, here's Kir and here's um, Elam. Yeah. Well, here are the Medes and the Persians over here, and they're going to expand and eventually take this and get bigger and take over everything Babylon had. That little Venn diagram overlap here of those two cities mentioned in verse 6, Elam and Kir. Right now they belong to Babylon. Isn't this just so clear? I should use multiple colors. Right now they belong to Babylon, and that's just references that the people of Jerusalem are going to recognize. But soon they're going to get absorbed by Medes and Persians, and that's going to become an empire that's going to take over Babylon. A lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. Right now, it's just the way that he describes the source of the invasion of Judah. Here are the people who are providing the quivers. Here are the people providing the shields. Here are the people who are going to be the soldiers marching in to take your city. It's the people of Elam and the people of Kir. Of course, it's all of Babylon, but those are two famous cities that they would have known. Verse 7. And it shall come to pass that your, Jerusalem's, your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and your horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. My Bible says choicest valleys. Sounds like a salad dressing. What does your Bible say? Same thing. Same thing? Your, your most beautiful plains, like you would stand on the hill and the valley is down below. You'd stand on the hill and you'd look down and you'd just see this lush greenery and you think, look how beautiful this land is. Truly a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's what it's supposed to look like. But after this, you're going to look down and you're going to see that beautiful lush valley is full of chariots and pagan soldiers come with blood, blood stained on their swords marching through to conquer your land. This land that God gave you, beautiful and perfect and provided for everything you need. And now God says, here, enemies, come on in and take it. And you're going to see those valleys overrun. The enemy is at the gate. Verse 8. And he discovered the covering of Judah, and you did look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. He discovered the covering of Judah. Literally, God unlocked the door and ushered them in. So, who's, whose is Judah? Who owns Judah? 
Who is the king of Judah? Well, you can you can list a king, you know, Jehoiakim or, or Zedekiah or whatever you want to name. But they're not really the kings. They're the guys who got to wear a crown and sit in a chair. But the real king of Judah, not even, not even Solomon or David, back when it was a united empire, were not the true kings of Israel. Who's the real king of Israel? God is. And God is the king. And God holds the key to unlock the door and open it up and say to Babylon standing outside, right this way. That's exactly what he's going to do. He will uncover Judah. He will open Judah. Mine says discover the covering. What does your Bible say? Same idea. Unlock the door, open it up, and let them ride in to take it. And you will look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest, Solomon's palace, the palace of the king. Which if you remember when it was time to build, um, Solomon, who was in charge of the building of the temple of God and of his own personal house, which was the bigger building? Who remembers? Solomon's house or the temple of God? Which was bigger? Solomon's house was bigger. And just a little incident. You know, when he, he was in charge of designing both, he built his house a little bit bigger. I don't know if he should have, but that's what he did. And it was made with great cedars of Lebanon as its, not foundation, but I guess as its pillars around which it was all constructed. So it's this house of wood. You don't think of it like that. I'm sure there was an outside covering, no doubt of a lot of gold and silver and stuff. Uh, but it was, it's, it's guts, it's innards is the great cedars of Lebanon. It's this house of wood, this great wooden structure, and now it's described as overrun by the enemies. Verse 9. You have seen also the breaches of the city of David, Jerusalem, that they are many, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool, the pool of Siloam, there in Jerusalem. And there are many reasons why they might gather there, um, maybe I've read one theory that the walls, when the walls start getting breached uh, by Babylon, because they're eventually going to puncture their way through and burn the city down. I've read that when the walls are getting breached, the, the people would rush to the Pool of Siloam to, to mix mortar, to hurry and patch the walls. Well, maybe. I can't imagine that's a very sound strategy. It's better than nothing, I guess, but you've got a solid wall, okay, and then there's a hole here. Now, if it's a hole big enough for somebody to get through, you can hurry and you can try to patch it, you know, like put wet cement there and then, what, ask the army, could you just wait a week till it hardens? <laughs> no, they're going to power right through there like a T-1000, it's a little slippery and they're going to slide through and they're going to be in. But if that was their thought process, it's panic time, we got to hurry and do something, they would go to the pool and they would mix up their first century, or no, first century, sixth century BC equivalent of cement to patch the walls. Um, other other theories that I read was it was there to secure it with soldiers and secure a water supply for the people because they're under siege and they need food and water for as long as they have it. <laughs> Whatever the reason, Judah is going to be scrambling. Judah is going to be improvising in all the worst kinds of ways, strategizing without any forethought or without really any, really any kind of um, tools needed to, to succeed. God was just a prayer away, I would remind you. God's a prayer away, and they rejected him. Verse 10, and you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem, and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall. When the walls are breached and the city is exposed, the people will be forced to ransack their own houses for whatever they can find as they um, hit the road. They will tear down their own houses for stones to use to repair the city's defenses. They will number their homes, determine which are expendable. Uh, you know, how would you like to hear a knock on your door and somebody says, um, the government has said you've got to vacate because we need all the bricks that comprise your house because there's a hole in the wall. 
That's, that's how bleak the situation is going to be in Jerusalem. Now, is there symbolism here? There's symbolism here. The people are desperate to hold on to their city. It never would have happened if they hadn't been loyal to God, uh, or if they hadn't been disloyal to God. But now that it's besieged, they're panicking, they're running, they're scrambling. But it's also a literal thing that happens in a siege. When you're under siege, the, the army outside your city that has you surrounded, if you study siege warfare, you're surrounded, here's your walls, and the army is all around surrounding you. They're not just content to sit there necessarily. The, the goal is to use uh, siege tactics. They want to break down your walls. They want to use ladders or they want to use eventually cannons and trebuchets and things like that. They want to puncture through. They want to create openings. Anything they can do to get their army in. Because once their army is in, then the game's over. Because they've already got you trapped in there where you can't come out to fight. You're locked in. So they're not content just to sit there and starve you out. That's the long game. You don't want to do that. You want to puncture the wall and get your people in. Well, that long period where they're trying to do that is just this period of tension and frustration and, and worry and panic. Just You can feel it rising and bubbling up. And, okay, there's a weakness in the wall here. We've got to hurry and scramble and fortify and re-secure that part of the wall. We need your house full of bricks to tear down and resupply and re-fortify the wall. That kind of... Now we got to scramble over here. That kind of constant back and forth vibe is what's going on in Jerusalem. Verse 11. Or what will go on in Jerusalem. Verse 11. <coughs> you have also made a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you have not looked unto the maker thereof. Neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. Very beautiful poetry here. God takes you from the very nitty gritty real world stuff. And he goes kind of supernatural on them. He says, okay, now you're digging trenches and you're trying to redirect water and you're, you're worried about all these things and you have yet to turn to the one who made the stones, who made the water, who made the earth, who made your life. You've yet to turn to the one who gave you the city in the first place. You're just, you're just scrambling to, to preserve the remnants of a, of, a, of a wall, remnants of a city. When I gave you the land and you won't turn to me, the maker thereof. You'll turn to the, we need water, we need water. No, you need God. And if you have God, you'll get water. That's what they didn't get. That point is kind of made for you in a very beautiful poetic way here in verse 11. <clears throat> verse, 20, uh, verse 12. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth. Baldness, we'll just start right there for no particular reason because slaves would have their heads shaved. Um, and sackcloth, they would not be wearing their fancy clothing. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning, but it's also clothing that a slave would put on. It's just rags. And so at the beginning of the verse again, in that day, the day of your doom, God is going to call, the God of hosts call everyone to weeping and to mourning. He's going to summon you for this. This is your fate now. This is, I'm directing you, weep and cry because your city is lost. Verse 13, and behold... So look at the contrast from 12 and 13. In verse 12, God says, here's how you should be acting. You should be weeping. You should be mourning. It's the end of the world for you. Verse 13, what's their current reaction? As Isaiah is standing on the street corner with the sign that says, the end is nigh, the end is nigh. What is the reaction of the people? How did we start this chapter? Are they weeping and mourning and crying? No. Verse 13, behold, joy and gladness. Slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. And the attitude is, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. So instead of weeping over their predicament, instead of begging God for a 65th chance, instead of lamenting that they should have turned to God before, etc., etc., all those things they could do, even if they didn't think about God at all, instead of just being sad their city's going to fall, instead their attitude is, well, if Isaiah's right and the end really is nigh, we better have ourselves the biggest party ever. Let's go out chugging. Let's go out having fun. Behold, joy and gladness. You're killing oxen because you got to have a big meal. You're killing sheep. You're eating all the meat and you're drinking all the wine. And my Bible uses the phrase, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die. Is that what your Bible says? Yeah. And we shall die, yours says? All right, but it doesn't mean like they're certain they will die tomorrow. It's more like the shrugging of the shoulders. Well, if we're going to die, I'm going to go out my way. And that kind of arrogance has to be the most infuriating part of this whole thing. Because God is not invisible. God has not completely abandoned the people. He's still sending a prophet to preach to the people and to tell them, you don't have to die. You can still repent. You can still turn back to me. I know you won't, and so here's what's coming. But there's always the opportunity to repent. And the attitude of the people is, nah, we're going to die, so I'm going to have a big party on my way out. That way I can go out my way. But you don't have to go out at all. If I'm going to die, I'm gonna, you don't have to die. Stop dying and live with God. Now, I'd rather die with me than live with God. And that kind of practical atheism, that kind of casual dismissiveness of God, is going to be the worst part of all this. Somebody, just to completely go off topic, and I think I've got the verse right because I'm just bringing it right now. I think it's Ezekiel 18, no, 33, 11. Somebody read Ezekiel 8, 33, verse 11. Let's just see if I got that right. If I didn't, I'll paraphrase it and I'll look it up later. Somebody, Ezekiel 33, 11. First one there, read it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Say to them, surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from their evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? There it is. Aren't you hear what she said? All right. As I, as I live, that's God taking a vow. I promise you this. As I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now he spends all of Ezekiel up to that point. All of Isaiah up to this point saying, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And he gives you just a little windowless thought process there in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, I am not happy about it. I swear, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What I want, what I would take pleasure in is for the wicked to turn from their evil and live. And then he pleads with them, turn, turn from your evil ways, your wicked ways. For why will you die? O house of Israel. The same thing could be said by Isaiah here. You people are celebrating and partying, not because you're going to live, but because you've been told you're going to die. You've been told God could save you, and you thought, I would rather just die my way than live with God. And I can't imagine a worse slap in the face to God than that. It's one thing to be led astray and to believe some other God can save them. No, they're past that. They know. Of all of them, of anybody worshiping these false gods, Judah knows those gods can't do anything. And they know their God can. They just don't care. And that's got to sting to the heart of God. Verse 15. No, sorry. Verse 14. 14. 
And it was revealed in my ears by the Lord of hosts. Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, says the Lord of hosts. You're going to die. Your attitude is, let's party if we're going to die tomorrow. And God says, if that's your attitude, then you are going to die tomorrow. Mind you, they don't have to. It's like the unpardonable sin. The only truly unpardonable sin is a sin you don't repent of. You can be forgiven of anything, anything, name it. God will forgive you, but you have to ask for it. You've got to turn away from it. And if you don't, if you don't, any sin will condemn you. You think, how this terrible sin over here, could God really forgive that? Yes, if you repent. This little, tiny, little, bitty sin here, will that condemn? Yes, if you don't repent. It's the same thing, the same remedy is repentance. To God, it's just sin. So you will die tomorrow, but it's your fault because you choose not to repent. Verse 15. Thus says, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, get thee unto this treasurer. We're changing subjects now. Even unto Shevna, who is over the house, and say dot, dot, dot. So first 14 verses, big picture Jerusalem, you're all going to die, and you're happy about it. You idiots. Now, let's zoom in, and let's see, what's, what's a microcosm of this? Let's pluck a person who's like the, the typical Jerusalemite that really represents what's wrong with Judah. Verse 15 again. Find me that treasurer, Shevna, who is over the house, that is over the, the royal family, the treasurer over the house. And say to him, the King James phrases it, what hast thou here? Which is literally, who, who put you in charge? What right do you have to be here? This outsider has come in, this guy with a Moabite name has come in to be a prominent, powerful figure in the Judean royal family. Where did this guy come from, is what God says. And whom hast you here? Like, why are you here? What's your purpose here? Who invited you here? They, you, who have hewed out for yourself a sepulcher here, and have hewed him out a sepulcher on high, and that grave a habitation for himself in a rock. This guy, this outsider guy, who has worked his way up the totem pole to be a powerful figure in the royal family, and has used taxpayer dollars to provide for himself this grand, lavish tombstone for when he goes, so that everyone who walks by will see, that guy must have been important. Look at the size of his gravestone. He's got the big cross with the big giant angel there, and all, that, all the big extravagant tombstone he's got there. That guy must have been important. It's just some Moabite. He's not even, he doesn't even go here. Why is he here? That's, that's this guy. And God says, as he's looking around and scanning his people, lamenting over them, he zeroes in and he's like, who is this Moabite? How did he get to be so powerful? How have you gone so far off the reservation, Judah, that you letting this foreign pagan guy be in charge here? Verse 17. Behold, he says to him, Shebna, I will carry you away with a mighty captivity and surely will cover you. You are going away into either Egypt or Assyria. One, verse 18. He will surely violently turn and toss you like a ball into a large country. Is that what your Bible says? Verse 18. Throw you like a ball. Yes. God is going to wad you up and shoot his shot and fire you off into some other foreign land. This is Isaiah really just venting right now. He sees this guy as a typifying problem. This guy represents everything that's wrong right now. And he says, you, I'm looking at you, you pagan. God is going to grab you and wad you up and chuck you into the nearest foreign land. You do not belong here. You're going into captivity the hard way. That's what he says. 
toss you like a ball into a large country. There's no other phrase like that in the Bible. You won't find it. It's literally, wadge up and chuck you like a ball. There you shall die, and there the chariots of your glory shall be ashamed of the Lord's house. You want this big fancy tombstone? You want everyone to look and admire you? Well, they can admire you way over there. But you don't belong here. 19. I will drive you from your station, from your place where you uh, propped yourself up, treasurer, but it's a very powerful position. And from your state shall he put you down, as Isaiah speaking of God about him. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So here is this Moabite foreigner, outsider, doesn't belong here, uh, Shevna. And God says, you're part of the problem. God is just going to with you. And he's going to replace you with this guy who at first, very faithful. Again, these two guys are going to represent what's the problem here. First problem, foreign influence. They're listening too much to outsiders, not trusting God. Second problem, corruption from within. That's Eliakim. But starts good though, as did Judah. Starts good. I'm going to call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, verse 21. And I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna. Uh, uh, he's going to take your robe, your your um, station in Judah. And I will strengthen him with your girdle. He's going to wear your belt. And I will commit your government into his hand. I'm just going to give him your job because you're off in Egypt right now. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Father used here in the sense of a mentor, a shepherd, a guiding force, which is what a leader of a nation is supposed to be. Currently, this leader is this Moabite outsider. So when that guy's hitting the road, God says, I'm going to replace him with a proper guy, a local who knows his people, who serves me. He's going to wear your robe and your belt, and he's going to have your the, the authority that you have. He's going to do the job. 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and no one will shut it, and he will shut and no one shall open. If those words sound familiar, Jesus himself will use that figure of speech to describe himself in Revelation chapter 14. Oh, sorry, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 14. In Revelation 3, 7, Jesus says, I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So from that reference, which very clearly is lifted from Isaiah's phraseology, from that reference, you get someone jumping to a conclusion and they say, oh, Isaiah 22, 22, this must be a messianic prophecy. Mm, it's not though. Not, not exactly. What you have is a guy who has the authority that will be um, fully realized in the Messiah. An authority that is currently being given to this pagan outsider, and now it's going to be given to a proper Judean person. And the authority is described as having the key of David. Well, this is the city of David. He has the authority of the city of David. So that what he says goes. If he locks the door, you can't unlock it. If he unlocks it, you can't lock it. That metaphor is used by Jesus to say, now I'm the authority of the people of God. Now I decide what goes and what stays. But that that phrase is not necessarily messianic. It's not, it doesn't have to be messianic. It's just used by the Messiah. So let's not run too far with that metaphor and conclude something we shouldn't. Uh, this, this Eliakim fellow is not the Messiah. He's an actual human being person who's going to occupy a job that Jesus never will, a treasurer. Verse 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Does anybody's Bible not say nail? Huh? Like a peg. peg? Okay. 
But you can see how in the old Bible, translating it nail, again, someone's mind is going to go to the Messiah. A peg is just something you drive to hold something in, in place, right? A nail, you drive it to hold something in place. So you've got the previous verse that Jesus quotes about himself. You've got this verse that talks about a nail, and people are putting connections together they shouldn't. Because if you look very carefully, what he says about Eliakim is not that he's going to be nailed. Jesus will be nailed. Eliakim's not going to be nailed. Eliakim's going to be the nail. That's what he says. I'm going to fasten you in place like you fasten a nail to a board or fasten a peg to a board. So he's going to be this nail that is stuck where God wants him to be. This you know, false guy, Moab guy, um, Shevna, where did he come from? He's out of here. I am going to install this guy, Eliakim, and I'm going to put him in place. You're not going to remove him from his place. I'm going to stick him there like a nail to a board. That's what it's saying. 24. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, that is, the descendants to come after, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups to all the vessels of flagons. So, five minutes, we're almost done. I'm going to give this guy all the authority, all the perks, all the privileges that was supposed to belong to a Judean in the first place. And for some reason, somewhere along the way, some pagan outsider took over it. So that's just what he's saying here in 24. I'm going to give this guy that authority. Sounds like it's a really good thing. Everything sounds like it's going great. You've rooted out this bad influence. He's out of here. Now you've got this local, this guy from the inside who's going to take over. This is all great. But the problem with Judah is twofold. Problem A, they've got too much pagan influence on the outside. All right. Problem B, they've got corruption on the inside. So what happens? Verse 25. In that day. Now, everything has been building to this verse. You have, I'm going to install Eliakim, I'm going to give him all this authority, I'm going to give him this power, I'm going to give him all these privileges, I'm going to give him everything, and in that day that I give him everything, 25, says the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed. Is that what your Bible says? It says secure place. Will be removed? Or give way. Or give way? Yeah. I'm going to put this guy right where I want him. I'm going to fasten right there. I put him there, which means you can't remove him. So if that thing goes, who removed it? God did. Same one who put him there is going to remove him there. Why would God do that? Is it because he's doing too good of a job? Uh-uh. What happens to Judah at the end is they become wholly given over to paganism. I mean, we're building right now, and we're prophesying about Babylon and so forth, but in the present moment when Isaiah is writing this, it is Assyria's threat. Assyria is bearing down. And Assyria, as we'll see next time we come back to this class in a few months, Assyria is going to be stopped by God. Assyria is the, the challenge. Assyria is the danger. And Assyria will take care of them because a king will repent to God. King Hezekiah will turn to God, and Assyria will stop. But then after Assyria is over... More bad kings will come in, and they will double down on evil, and God will say, well, you've had your 57th chance. That's, that's it. The cup runs over. Babylon takes over. So you, you, blew your, you blew your chance. I put you in place. I took care of you. You didn't stay faithful, so I'm removing that peg. And Eliakim is kind of the representation of that whole thing. I drove out this pagan influence. I got rid of Shebna. I got rid of the Moabite influence. And I put in a local guy who knows me, who knows the people, who knows the culture. And I gave him everything. I gave him every provision. I gave him every blessing. I gave him every advantage. And now I'm going to have to remove that pig. Why? Because he wasn't faithful. Again, verse 25. And that day says the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened or the peg that is secured 
it shall be removed and it shall be cut down and fall and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off says the Lord of hosts that just takes us full circle back to verse 1 it started with the burden to this whole region and now here it is again this political leader given great blessing corrupted himself and by God is removed end of chapter was that was that the bell did I hear it again if I didn't, it's about to ring. We have one more chapter, chapter 23, Burden of Tyre, um, which will summarize like this. Your Walmart is going down. That's what Tyre was. Tyre was your one-stop shop for all your regional needs. And they became materialistic. People relied too much on them. So God's going to burn Walmart to the ground. And there will be much lamenting. All right. You're dismissed. Thank you guys very much. There it is. There it is.